Everything I've said is true. It's real. Dinosaur fossils? I'll have to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie. I, I saw them on my own eye. Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane. This is mass madness, you maniac. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. We are live on YouTube. Sweet. Nice. Good evening, everybody. We are back with Rise of the Expert Part 5. Woo. Industrial Democracy mm-hmm. and the Protocol of Peace. This mm-hmm. is going to be an interesting one. I love the logo for it. It's so brutal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll show you where I got inspired to make that because some of the artwork that we include here is like wartime propaganda and... uh you'll see that the imagery that they use to sell war to Americans and how it's so progressive. So that's really Mm. where I get inspiration from that just uh, a couple of days ago. That's awesome. (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah. I loved it too. So, um, yeah, we're going to dive right in. I'm just kind of setting up over here. I'm sending out the link to, to the social media pages so everybody can tune in um yep. we'll see I'm, I'm sure we'll see some people we got one person watching right now which is so, awesome yeah we'll take it yeah absolutely. welcome thank you for welcome. being here <laughs> yeah so, so we're gonna maybe go cover ahead, the minutes right. quickly that's so, right yeah like we did want to kind of parts yeah so, and just to clear up any possible con- confusion and yeah. things that we had talked about in the chat for sure you right. me and andy yeah and so you know, we've shown through uh, parts one to four that Brandeis first took over the three branches of the U.S. government through, you know, being the personal advisor to Woodrow Wilson. And then in two, we see that he coins the term scientific management and they start using this technology to force man into manufactories. Uh, part three, we covered Zionist and his connections as an international Zionist leader larger than even Chaim Weitzman or anybody else, any of his contemporaries. Uh, we showed that he, you know, the, the drafts for the Balfour Declaration in 1917 um, went through the Brandeis Group's hands, and it went literally through Brandeis's hands in Paris in 1919 as they were, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. There was some contemplation there that maybe the Americans weren't going to endorse this whole idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And so he he actually got on a boat and went to Paris. He visited Israel at that time. It's the only visit that he ever had, but he made a stop in Paris and talked to Balfour in in um, David Lloyd George's private suite. And through several cables and several uh, variations, they came up with the Balfour Declaration that we have today. So we can see, <clears throat> and also part four was how he infiltrated dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. And the social gospel. So he's influencing uh, hundreds of millions of Americans to get behind the idea of a Jewish homeland. And then, you know, also this social gospel, this, um, you know, when we go back a long ways to some of the first founders of America, they, they studied Hebrew and they knew Hebrew and they respected the Jewish people for the things that were going on in history. And so uh, we see that uh, same thing going on as we talked about the Blackstone Memorial petition and asking uh, for 
cooperation and support from the American government and, and particularly the president at that time, Harrison, but mm. they didn't get involved with him until Brandeis in 1916 saw this Blackstone petition and then got it organized for, for Blackstone to create a, a fresh one and a new one. And so really to sum it all up until this point, we're just showing how Brandeis is, you know, a creator of our modern day social contract a lot of the things that we um, identify today as major issues that are affecting our society negatively. When we go back and look at those origins, we see that they all, you know, all roads kind of lead to Brandeis here. And so in part five, we're going to show deeper into what we started to cover in part two, the scientific management of America and get into more of the detail, get into the, the actual documents. Mm -hmm. and the actual testimony and just paint a picture to show people the environment under which all of these decisions were made and how our social contract was made without us having any say in it so when we right. talk about waking up in the morning to an alarm clock and you know working eight hours a day minimum and five days a week you know all of these uh, details and, and the system that was created for us that we were all born into goes back to the exact same time and the exact same people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and we'll get into a little bit more here, but what I want people to understand is that through the first term of Woodrow Wilson, 1912 to 1916 is really when they set the domestic uh, blueprint, the fundamental aspect, because they wanted America to be compatible with this future international order that they already had in mind. They'd already been meeting for a hundred years throughout time starting with the first internationals and Karl Marx but also the 1907 uh, Hague conferences you know Theodore Roosevelt is the one that really um, sparks the interest in all of this and he invites a whole bunch of international leaders and they start working on this idea of international law rather than a material force of arms so Brandeis very very influential and more and more influential as we go this is what I'm just finding. So this is where I'm going to start with our conversation on Brandeis part five, the Fabian society and industrial democracy. Now I didn't fix that title. I just actually changed it. That was the working title, mm. but I thought, you know, uh, industrial democracy and the protocol of peace was more fitting, but we do not shy away from the Fabian society and its connections. I haven't changed anything in, in the text of the story. And this is where we're going to actually first start is fantastic with the relations between brandeis a, a father of american progressivism uh, and specifically the efficiency movement because the progressive movement is created uh, you know by two pillars preparedness and efficiency and if anybody's been you know paying attention in the last three years since covid preparedness was a huge word that was being used today and then you know we have joe biden today you know his presidential platform is build back better right these are progressive. This is progressive language. And so we see that the, you know, progressivism is the third rail. It's going right up the middle. And this is why no matter what uh, president or party is in control, the foreign policy of killing people from a good, safe di distance doesn't ever change. And, and using today, nice they, words. <laughs> yeah. And even today they will call, you know, American foreign policy and what's happening in the Middle East, Wilsonianism. Okay. So wow. I've, yeah. I heard it not too long ago, and that really just blew me away that they, they openly admit those kinds of things. 
without even knowing it for the most part yeah yeah uh so sydney webb for those that don't know is a is a founder he, he can be considered a founder of fabianism they come along a little bit later after uh the brother the ethical brotherhood of something or other is the original precursor to the fabian society and then we see the the big four really of fabianism come into that group that organization and infiltrate it change it into the fabian society and it is then turned into the british labor party so there's a lot of people that may may not know that but fabianism is legit it's not a uh, conspiracy theory this is actually the british labor party today so they're they're um you know they're a legitimate organization mm -hmm. they're not necessarily secret but their agenda is for the most part so sydney webb is often represented as a descendant of the utilitarians social democracy and the welfare state thus stand as the continuing development of enlightenment rationalism Alternatively, Webb appears as the representative of a new managerial or administrative class. Social democracy and the welfare state here stand as the elitist and bureaucratic expressions of the power of this class. So that's an abstract from Mark Bevere. He's the director of the Center for British Studies and professor in the Department of Political Science, University of California, Berkeley. He's written this abstract. It's I don't think this is a PhD or a dissertation, but this is just an article that he wrote. And, and he's a historian investigating this area era and it was called Sidney Webb utilitarianism positivism and social democracy now what's important about here is the language this is where we start connecting things okay um, you know the fact that Webb wrote industrial democracy and this is the phrase that Louis Brandeis is using through these in, these um, meetings to create the protocol of peace. And, you know, that's the phrase that's being used throughout this. And I'll show you in these quotes. Mm -hmm. it, what it does is it connects Webb and these ethical socialists of the time with Brandeis directly. So going forward, just remember that. Okay. So... Here's another quote, and this is directly from Industrial Democracy. So this is the book written by Sidney and Beatrice Webb, 1897. And this is really what every everything is based off of this idea going forward. Okay. Uh, it, it was first started in Britain because this is really where, where all of this starts. And then it comes over to America and goes through the American progressives and they institute the same systems uh, as they were in Britain. So... Even those who regard our facts as accurate and accept our economic theory as scientific will only agree in our judgment of trade unionism and in our conception of its permanent but limited function in industrial democracy of the future. So here they're talking about industrial democracy. We are seeing uh, economic theory as scientific. We're seeing him mention trade unionism. So this is them creating unions as the scientific expert. So utilitarians is a, a word that we're going to get into here in a bit. Okay. And it's a very important uh, connection. So again, from Industrial Democracy, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, in our final chapter, we even venture upon precept and prophecy, and we consider the exact scope of trade unionism in the fully developed democratic state, the industrial democracy of the future. Okay, so this is what they're talking about. Uh, and what really an industrial democracy means is you know, it's, it's a definition of progressivism in many ways, 
in that to have an industrial democracy, you're going to have to have a system of, you know, factory workers that are patriotic and, you know, willing to work for the country. This is really what they established because we're leading up to the first world war. And what we're seeing is that all of this is being developed at this time specifically because they know they're already going to war. You know, this is 1910. Britain doesn't get involved in the first world war until 1914, but the writing is on the wall. We see it in their literature. They all know it uh, going back as far as Theodore Herzl. Mm -hmm. And even before that Blackstone mentions the importance of a, of a coming peace conference. So they're all implying that, you know, there is a war coming and for America to, to be victorious and, and the allies to be victorious, they're going to need America to get their shit together. They're going to have to align their factories, you know, and get them making war material mm -hmm. and have a large American populace that is uh, patriotic and ready to work, you know, for their country. And this is really Man. what we see established in all the propaganda. I know I'm jumping way ahead here um, beyond this series, but man, just the the image of the the woman worker with the the muscle yeah. arm, you know, from right. I think that's World War Two. Um, yeah, man, just the, <laughs> the hoodwink, the total propaganda right. they've talked us into. Yeah, yep, and you know we see a total repeat of of that same type of propaganda in world war two, because it's really established in, in world war one, mm -hmm. like the beast of Baghdad and, you know, the bayonetting of babies and all of those stories were repeated in world war two. Wasn't the first time. Right, and, you know, right. many things to do with that second world war happened first, you know, in 1917 with the first world war. Right. So, he, meaning Brandeis, spoke before citizens groups and legislative bodies, wrote articles for popular magazines, put his ideas about industrial democracy in the briefs he submitted as a lawyer and later in the opinions he wrote as a Supreme Court justice and advised Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. So you see that he's, these are the two most socialist um, presidents and we see that Brandeis is deeply involved with both. First, uh, with Woodrow Wilson, and then uh, as part of Franklin Roosevelt's brain trust, he's one of the original guys. And then Frankfurter takes over uh, all the work that Brandeis started. <clears throat> so from times long predating both Brandeis and Webb, men have attempted to resolve the human condition through experimental social reform. A century prior to Brandeis and Webb, Robert Owen and the early 19th century cooperative movements were foundational to Henri de Saint-Simon, Auguste Comte, and the rise of utopian socialism in the mid 19th century in France. And the more modern Fabian led ethical socialist movement of the early 20th century, a direct outgrowth of these same utopians. And when we fully trace back to source, the modern ideas found within the web's very socially pivotal industrial democracy, we see a continuity of thought of deeper historical value as all of these men find brotherhood with the even earlier philosophies of 17th and 18th century thinkers like Jeremy Bentham and David Hume. And here an important observation needs to be made as to set the tone for the remainder of this article in the series. It is critical to know here and worth the digression that by being identified as a descendant of the utilitarian, Sidney Webb is being immediately associated zero degrees of separation from Jeremy Bentham, the father of utilitarianism or the pragmatic determining of correct action by focusing on outcomes. 
So if anybody's up to date on the neoliberal mission, it's all about outcomes. So as I suggest here, like do neoliberal movements who today preach of the greater good and mm. social justice outcomes, yet they know nothing of where this thought originated. A slight shifting of the goalposts from equality of opportunity to equality of outcome. So generally, you know, in a meritorious system where you earn your position, it would be a quality of opportunity, right? Everybody gets the same opportunity from the beginning. But what's happened with this social reform movement is they're totally concerned with the quality of outcome. We saw that when our prime minister here in Canada formed his cabinet. He, it was open and admitted that this was going to be a, an opportunity of outcome. It was about outcomes. So what happened right. there was you end up with a bunch of people that may not necessarily be qualified for the position that they've been put in because of their skin color or their ethnic background or their social positioning, being a minority, right? So this is a illogical approach. It's it's really led to a lot of issues in our world where we have scientific experts and and leaders and influencers that have no idea what they're talking about. And I, you know, I, I don't really have to elaborate on that. I would say that, you know, most people would agree with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'll finish this thought and then we'll play this video. According to Bentham and the utilitarians, the best public utility, the ultimate ends to which any individual within the state could pursue is that pursuit which brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people and ends sounding a lot more like the future perfect promise of the utopian socialists or the manufactory owner or the labor union leader or the head of Pfizer. Right. We, hmm. we hear this greater good, greater good, greater good through COVID. And uh, so that, this, this is what I wanted to research. I said, well, where does this come from? Where does this greater good comes from? Well, immediately on a Google search, you find that it's Jeremy Bentham, the father of utilitarianism. And he wants all people to be a utility. They want, he wants everybody in society to contribute for the greater good. Mm. So that's really, uh, you know, putting aside your individuality. And just becoming a, a tool for them. So what they're doing is using people as an ends to a means. And we all know that when we've ever felt used, that's what people do. They make us like a, a, a means to their end somehow. Absolutely. Which is important in later, later conversations because this is, you know, this kind of selfish worldview and how we treat each other is, is become problematic in our society. Mm -hmm. and there's mm -hmm. a lot of selfish people here and so this all comes from bentham uh being you know a utility being helpful being handy doing the right thing to help your country so this is really the the underlying philosophy that really uh provides a basis for everything else that comes after and so you know we will get into other things later as far as you know how this all works mm -hmm. but it's important to understand how you know bentham and the utilitarians are totally connected to the the first the utopian socialists and compte positivism and then right, that is a direct, yeah a direct con uh, continuity right to the ethical socialists when they talk about this movement in in the, the books written by historians they talk about hume um, Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and then Beatrice Webb. They don't mention Sydney either, which is 
<laughs> kind of crazy, but they're connecting Fabianism to all the way back to David Hume and Jeremy Bentham's idea of utility and, and the greater good. So we can see it today. We see it today. They're using the exact same term. So right. how did they get everybody to put a needle in there? I'm the greater good. Absolutely. And you were evil if you didn't go along with that greater good. Right. So just to kind of sum up what the Fabian message is, I'll play this video. This guy's another founder of the Fabian Society. Most people would maybe recognize him as uh, Bernard Shaw, the playwright. But uh, he's actually a social critic. He's a philosopher and a major leader in the Fabian Society. And this is what he has suggested uh, a proper society might look like. I never know exactly how to make my opinion clear because I object to all punishment whatsoever. I don't want to punish anybody. But there are an extraordinary number of people whom I want to kill. Not in any unkind or personal spirit, but it must be evident to all of you, you must all know half a dozen people at least, who are no use in this world, who are more trouble than they are worth. And uh, I think it would be a good thing to uh, make everybody come before a properly appointed board, just as he might come before the income tax commissioners, and say every five years or every seven years, just put him there and say, sir or madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? If you can't justify your existence, if you're not pulling your weight in the social boat, if you're not producing as much as you consume, or perhaps a little more, then, uh, clearly, uh, we cannot use the big organization of our society uh, for the purpose of keeping you alive because your life does not benefit us and it can't be of very much use to you. Okay, so he's talking utility. Mm -hmm. People need to be able to uh, contribute. Now, at first, when you started hearing about the greater good and you started hearing everybody, you know, uh, being a contributor, it does sound like a good thing until you mm -hmm. hear his quote, until you hear his, like the man saying it like this. Yeah, there's an extraordinary number of people that he would like to kill. Yeah, and we're that getting closer and closer to a society like that. Yes, this in is more ways than one. And that's an aspect of Huxley's Brave New World. Right, it's a thousand percent. Orwell's 1984, and both of those guys are Fabian Society members. Famous. Look at that. Society, yes, right? I think we've mentioned that before. Both Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, Fabian Society members. So, yep. we've already Dwayne has already done extensive work on Aldous Huxley and his involvement in all this as a central problem. <laughs> yeah, to the point where we, I have identified him uh, as the head of MK Ultra. Right now, that sounds crazy, but go look at the work because it's he's incredible. He's deeply associated. He has major friendships, major close friendships with all of these MK Ultra doctors, and he's giving them advice on what to do. He moves to Los Angeles right after he writes A Brave New World. I mean, you start putting it together where he lives and all of Soma. that. Soma, I mean, yeah, yeah, and the book of Soma and how that all relates for sure. Exactly. So I mean, it's, so, it's yeah. So we talked about Compte. We just mentioned him. Now here's a little bit more on him. So Compte widely considered the first philosopher of science. 
he's the father of social science. That's what they call him, or the father of sociology. So in our next two episodes on law, we're going to show how sociology influenced our modern uh, philosophy of law. Okay. Sociology is a majorly important aspect because it's the study of human beings. That's what social science, sociology, if you look at the definition, it's the study of society. Right. And so, you know, the social sciences are all soft sciences, really. And, and there was a time when they weren't considered even legit when we think of psychiatry or psychology, you know. Mm-hmm. So they spent their the at least the first half of the 20th century just legitimizing their own existence, their own fields of study, like sociology, psychology, psychiatry, all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. So he's the founder of modern positivism. Positivism, a great rejection of all ideas that aren't gathered through experience. Intuition, introspection, considered meaningless through the positivist verification principle intuition or the collective perception of all of your senses into a formed or formed into a gut feeling are no longer accepted. They're burned as if sophistry is what they say uh, is our ability to consider or contemplate as the etymological definition of intuition into it suggests. So we put great value on our senses and our gut feeling, because this is really what has uh, differentiated maybe the asleep from the awake. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, Trusting that your direct experience. Yes. And this has been an attack on our sen- senses from day one uh, to the point now where they can make claims about climate change or things that are happening in our society that you can't actually see, but people believe. Mm-hmm. Like you can't actually see global warming. You can see storms and rain and all of these things. But because of the pseudo environment they've created through the mainstream media, people will walk through life, even though there is no real uh, example or something to look at or point to that shows it. They will believe these things just because they've their pseudo environment's been created through the television and, and their trust of the mainstream. And their trust of the modern expert in whatever fields yes. we're pointing that to. Is, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the key. So... Neither no longer acceptable is the ability to look within ourselves for answers to evaluate our own spirit and soul. <laughs> um, How so, convenient. It yeah, fits perfectly right. with everything else they're doing. Yeah, this rejection of anything outside the realm of acceptable sources sounding a lot like today's claims of fake news and this blind yeah. belief in the scientific expert or the belief that only the opinions of those experienced in whatever matter being discussed should be considered the appeal to authority or the argumentum ad auctoritatum. The result, a largely blissfully ignorant population of television watchers, right? And this has really, you know, become problematic, but this was built in by these men. And the word that they used was disinterested. They wanted people disinterested because if they're disinterested, that creates a gray area where they're not paying attention. And through that vulnerability, they can be exploited. And that degree of exploitation is directly related to how much you trust that authority. So we Bingo. see today, you know, how much we trust that authority, you know, it's, we gave them too much room, too much leash. And then they've gone and created things out of the furthest extent of their imagination, all born from over a hundred years ago, really. But we're showing the modern rendition. So it's more relatable to people. And, and, you know, we have photographs, real photographs of these people, a real motion picture of them, you know, saying crazy things like George Bernard Shaw said. 
Yeah, it's unreal. So Sydney and Beatrice Webb wrote in their scientific analysis of British industrial relations, the history of trade unionism in 1894, this is their most famous work, that sociology, like all other sciences, can advance only upon the basis of a precise observation of actual facts. So facts are disputable. Facts have multiple viewpoints and perspectives that, be, that can be created. They're the furthest thing from the truth, but we see them using that word facts and stats a lot. I mean, this is what the Brandeis brief is made of, and this is the social science of it. This is the, the scientific expert when they start saying things like that. Mm -hmm. So for the webs and their American counterparts, the professional expert, whether civil servant or representative, was a, of decisive importance in bringing about industrial democracy. Americans quickly noticed the idea as it appealed to their newly found sense of rational or objective science as a means to solve social and economic problems. Amer American adherence to industrial democracy included future Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, saw in it a vehicle to rationalize American industry within a democratic framework. So that's mm. from Triangle Shirtwaist, The Protocol of Peace and the Industrial Democracy in Progr Progressive Era, New York, Richard A. Greenwald. So there here he's identifying Louis Brandeis and his mission. He's identifying him with industrial democracy and the webs and showing that the Amer American counterparts uh, took the lead of the Brits. So this is the Fabian Society syndicalist socialist group. Uh, getting together with the American progressives. And we will talk about later that circle that starts just two paragraphs down, and it, it really starts at the House of Truth. Aha, familiar so place. Many, yeah, many Americans, many American progressives were keenly aware of European experiences with labor problems. They studied Europe for guidance or a model. Industrial democracy, one such import, is most often associated with Sidney and Beatrice Webb, and their circle of British Fabian socialists. The Webbs, in their seminal 1897 book, Industrial Democracy, called for a reinvigorated democracy, one where unions played a central role. For the Webbs, modern capitalist industry had put an undue strain on democratic society. Unions could bring dem democracy to industry. As democratic institutions themselves, they offered the best hope of bringing democracy to society. So they're, they're trying to create democracy on the shop floor first so that they can make a democratic man to <laughs> work the machines so that they can create a, a network of factories to then create their future country that's built on manufacturing for wars. Mm -hmm. So unions is an essential part of this. This is the scientific expert being uh, put in between the, the laborer, the worker, and his own work, his own labor. So Brandeis was very familiar with the work of the Fabian Society since as early as the Haymarket affair on May 4th, 1886. This is where we get Labor Day in America on May 4th. Is that correct? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So his close friends at the House of Truth included Fabian Society members Walter Lippmann and, Har and Harold Lasky. <clears throat> Lasky, a Harvard lecturer and professor at the Webb-founded London School of Economics. Lippmann, close personal friends with another Fabian founder, Graham Wallace. Wallace dedicating his The Great Society to Lippmann in, in 1914. The Great Society 
and industrial democracy here being synonymous. Brandeis chose industrial democracy as the future model of America, then manifested it into reality through his nearly omniscient authority. So I think we talked about this in the last episode, how their brotherhood of the kingdom of God or whatever it was called is really the, the great society appeal to the Christian religious demographic of America. So it's, it's basically right. the same thing, but now we see another one being uh, implemented here called the industrial democracy, but all three terms are the same thing. They're all, we talk about outcomes and ends and means the ends are all the same. Yeah. It's all centered them. around labor. Yeah. And they're all connected through, you know, socialism as we covered last week, even the Christian socialist movement and the social right. gospel. This is all highly infiltrated by sociology professors and Baptist ministers. So we see it. It's across the board. They're just appealing to dim different, different demographics. Okay. Absolutely. Just different so, representatives. This is the Fabian window. This is very famous. This is the Shaw window, they actually call it. And it disappeared for quite a while in the 20th century and then reappeared. And when they put it at the London School of Economics, the uh, British prime minister at the time, the guy that went to war in Iraq with us, Tony Blair, mm -hmm. he was there as the ceremony for the ceremony. So Tony Blair is a Fabian. So we can see, you know, we talked about progressivism being that middle road and or the third rail, and, and it doesn't matter which is in power, the Republicans or the Democrats, we're still, you know, still moving forward with the exact same foreign policy. But we see it, you know, during 9-11 with Tony Blair and George Bush, they hook up <clears throat> with the same idea, really, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What is what is all of that driven by, but a greater good or a collective security, all of these nice sounding words, right? Mm. So, yep, go ahead. No, I was just going to, I'm just imagining in my head the ultimate reel you could put together of like all presidents and politicians and, and presidential candidates in general saying for the greater good, you right. probably have like a 20 minute ultra gag, yep. you know? Right. Yep. And this, we see an ominous continuity. I like to call it all the way back mm -hmm. from our, from build back better and the, the, uh, campaign of Hillary Clinton in 2016, all the way back to these days, uh, just prior to the 19th turn of the 20th century. Yeah. So the, this famous Fabian window, we've got George Bernard Shaw in green on the right. So we showed you a picture of him or a video of him. There he is on yep. the right. <clears throat> uh, and I think that's Edward RPs. It's one of the other founders in red. You can see they both have hammers. And they've got mm -hmm. the world on the anvil and they're smashing it. And above it says, remold it nearer to the heart's desire. So this is their game plan, you know, and, and it, they, they, they get their name from uh, a, an ancient uh, warrior. I think it's Flavius. And oh, okay. his whole war tactic was to starve out his opposition, his enemy, and to like through wars of attrition to slowly uh, like like we do with with stop you know stopping food we we saw the Americans doing that in World War One and and World War Two just mm -hmm. preventing food from getting to the countries that they're fighting and so one thing that we notice about modern day maybe it's a lot more accelerated especially since COVID but we see a slow march here 
over the hundred years. And this is what they decided, you know, this phrase, uh, boiling a frog. Yeah. You oh, yeah. Just throw a frog into boiling water. They're going to jump out. But if you slowly heat it, he won't notice. This is the idea between, between, uh, behind Fabianism. And you can see that you zoom right in here. Industrial democracy is the book on the bottom there. And they're wow. all praying to these. Okay. And that's oh, this all is the wild. Fabianism. This is yeah. crazy, dude. Yeah. And so People just uh, listening to this, please come onto the YouTube channel and <laughs> watch now, this. Now, I got something for you too, Rouse. We okay. wanted to talk about theosophy and, and how this all connects to, you know. Yeah, the esoteric Broly. side of it. Yeah. 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 The well, other the girl side. on the right-hand side of those books is Annie Besant. Do you know who <gasps> that is? That's a very familiar name. Why right. do I know See, that she's, name? She's totally connected to theosophy. Uh, I'm not an expert in that era area, mm -hmm. but she leaves the Fabian society because she becomes far more interested in theosophy and there's connections between her and that whole realm that if okay. anybody watching or reading this article eventually wants to get into, man, that is an incredibly interesting vein of research to go into Annie Besant's background to find her connections to Crowley, uh, Blavatsky, yes. theosophical uh aspect to our world because we're already seeing that huxley met with crowley in berlin uh in the interwar periods just as berlin was about to fall and Very this is key. where christopher isherwood writes bye bye berlin uh, and this is where i'm not sure what happens because they're all all three of those men are known bisexuals but they specifically met in berlin at the height of you know, the debauchery that was going on there, hundreds of thousands of prostitutes are in the streets and you can buy any uh, kind of sexual favor from anywhere uh, at any time. It's really sort of, you know, it's like a kind of precursor to what we're starting to see here in America. This is, you know, why mm -hmm. I wrote a couple articles on that because you can really see some parallels between interwar Germany and today. And so, you know, in that work, I show how the, all of that happens. So you can see second guy from the left. Uh, mm -hmm. Second guy on the left from the stack of books, he's reading a book called New World for Old. What does that mean? Right. So this is, you know, Woodrow Wilson writes The New Freedom. The first chapter is The Old Order Changeth. Uh, uh, there's tons of language like that. New World for Old. So they are they're studying this transformation like 9-11 uh, changed history into a before and after. This is exactly what happens with the social reform of the progressive era at this time, 1912 to 1919. It really creates a before and after in history. So, mm -hmm. You know, us living today, we can start to relate and see that there's echoes in history. So yeah, this, I felt like we needed to get this shown. We've, we have covered this on previous podcasts, but that Fabian window you know, needs to be talked about because it's a direct connection to Brandeis. Now, Brandeis, as far as I could tell, isn't a member of the Fabian Society, but as we've shown that he has um, advocated for the industrial democracy and really gravitated towards the, the thoughts and theories of the webs. And mm -hmm. it's because he's hanging out at the House of Truth. He's an honored guest there all the time. And He's meeting with Walter Lippmann, the, the father of modern journalism. The Fabian Society is well represented at the House of Truth. 
you know, among other things. So, and it's a political salon, Andy. So what do you think they're, they're talking about? Right. They're just shaping society as we know. Yeah. And we know from reading uh, the official biography of the, the House of Truth that Mount Rushmore comes from there and all kind. This is where they flip the definition of liberalism over the 20th century. And this is the founding of the progressive movement. The progressive era is founded there. And, you know, it was originally supposed to be a political salon in support of Theodore Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party. That was right. the very first progressive party in America. Yet the one thing about Roosevelt was that he didn't want to experiment. At least this is the story that I see that Theodore Roosevelt wanted to change society, but he, he stopped at experimenting with the U S constitution. So you can see where the house of truth and, and the new Republic, cause they, they found the new Republic as a, as a progressive bullhorn magazine. Uh, the whole group then transfers from Roosevelt to Wilson. They support Wilson. He wins the president presidential election and, mm. you know, he wins in 1912. And in the first full year, they established the federal reserve. So do you think this kind of gives uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, a, a silver lining? Mm. Like, you know, maybe no, no. <laughs> no. Well, he's a Freemason. He's a deep, yeah, deep Freemason. Uh, I do love, you know, some of the things that he said, yeah, me too. Um, and that's commendable. And I, I that take advantage stopped. of many of his national parks. <laughs> right, right. And he was a king of conservation, with which is a total aspect of the progressive era. This, I, which is so uh, weird because it's such a genuinely good quality. Like, I mean, as a hunting advocate, as a as a wildlife person, as a hiker, right. as a mountaineer, I. I'm 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 fully behind a lot of the the efforts and the the principles of conservation. Yeah, you so know, totally am I. And I haven't got to the bottom of you know how that is being used here. Right, it's it all co-opted. Everything's co-opted yeah. in some way and, or another. You know. Yeah, and I would That's say just look at just look at the fact that it is you know the state gathering and protecting for themselves under their name large swaths of land. Yeah, and we don't have to go too far into woo-woo territory, but I mean, the fact that uh, most of the land, I mean, if you, anybody is interested and hasn't researched David Pallades and the missing 411, all the ideas of missing people in uh, national forests and things like that, it's a pretty impressive conspiracy, and there's a lot of cave systems that align with these locations and all sorts of other things, so... But yeah, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother angle, right. but you never send know. Maybe that's the connection. That. Yeah, sure. Maybe that's yeah, the connection to that. how things are being co-opted uh, right. in that territory. But yeah. But, and so I would say that land property, that is, you know, the basis of individuality. Yeah. You know, to have freedom, you have to ha own property, whether that's intellectual or physical. Yeah. For real. Part. So. Brandeis, chairman of the arbitration board of the Protocol of Peace with Walter Weil and Hamilton Holt. Weil, the author of The New Democracy in 1913. You and I have talked about how all these books were published in the same year. The New Democracy, The New Republic, The New Freedom, The New Nationalism. <laughs> and he's a resident of the House of Truth. So there he is. I've been wondering when he was going to show his head, but here he is. This is his role in that he is a member on this 
three-member arbitration board with Hamilton Holt and Brandeis is the chair. So a look through the minutes shows Brandeis very much the star witness of the Commission on Industrial Relations. They get together and do like, like uh, the church committee when they exposed that the CIA and the mainstream media were working together. All right. There was all kinds of investigations into trusts, into Wall Street, uh, into all of these powers, and they all failed to to prosecute or charge anybody. But when you go into those papers and look, they've all been uh, sidetracked, totally railroaded for reasons you know we probably have even seen today. Just you know the way that they manipulate things. Oh yeah, so, I mean even the director of the CIA just request he wouldn't answer the questions in that in that uh, church hearing anyway. He would just requested skiffs. And right. I think he got them right. and then everything yeah. goes away. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, one thing to realize there is Frank Church was a Council on Foreign Relations member. In so how much isn't is that really interesting? Own, right? Isn't that interesting? So what was I the point that, of even bringing it forward in the provocative well, way that he did? Well, to let everybody know what was going on. I would say. Has it has it prevented anybody from has it prevented the media from changing? knowing that the CIA controls it for you know longer than you and I've been alive. It hasn't really yeah. changed anything. It's gotten worse. Yeah, well, much media worse, yeah. Media is not representative of the general public, for sure. Yeah, and it is interesting. It never tells you the truth. The, you know, just a sidetrack here. Everybody points to the Smith-Muntz uh, Modernization Act that uh, changed the, uh, the, the rules for... Uh, propaganda against foreign nations uh yeah. that you know that that material would be allowed into uh domestic circulation or something something along yeah. those lines yeah. uh, that everybody blames obama and everything but when it really comes down to it if you look at all the programming we grew up with way before 2012 there was plenty of propaganda yeah, all sure. the time so i think us being able to point to that as some sort of you know, smoking gun is just a red herring as, as usual. So well, just wanted to add would, that in. Yep. And I would back that up by saying that the first uh, propaganda arm of the U S government was created in 1917 called the Committee <sighs> on public information. That's where Edward Bernays, Walter Lippmann, George Creel, and really the Mount Rushmore of propagandists all work together to help make Woodrow Wilson what they called and Bernays admitted years later before he died, a Godhead symbol trying to get wow. everybody to think that he was going to make the world safe for democracy. So we get into this in, in, you know, week eight, nine, and 10, because we're going to show how these patterns go from local to state to federal to international. They're just Boom. doing the same thing. Okay. Okay. So a look through the minutes shows Brandeis very much the star witness at this uh, commission, uh, on industrial uh, relations or the festival headlining act of the entire proceedings. The last to speak after a roll call of progressive efficiency experts, the owner of the house of truth, even Robert Grosvenor Valentine testifies as does Frederick Winslow Taylor, Henry Gant, Carl Barth and Harrington Emerson among more. But those are the names that we're familiar with going back in through our series, back to part two scientific management. These are all members of the Taylor society. So, and Brandeis coins the term scientific management. So this is a group of men that, that already were controlled by Brandeis. He'd already had them 
you know, testifying in other uh, large cases in which they established and made popular the idea of scientific management. They were bringing it into the lexicon of uh, American ideas and they were doing it through these uh, very well-known um, cases. And they mm -hmm. were you know, changing legislation and the, these all became landmark cases for the future to the point where they still exist today. This is the whole point is that everything that was established by Brandeis can be looked at today um, as, you know, his brainchild, but we can also yeah. look at it from the point of view of hindsight is 2020 and we've had a hundred years and we can see that, you know, a lot of these things that he's instituted is, have been, you know, primary in our downfall beginning right. with the federal reserve. Right. So here is some, what I've pulled out of the actual testimonies. So if they should fail to agree, then there was recourse to this board of arbitration with Mr. Brandeis as chairman. So I included that because it says Mr. Brandeis as chairman. Yeah. And so the acting chairman here asking questions is the acting chairman of the commission on industrial democracy. Mr. Brandeis is a witness. Okay. So all of these guys are witnesses and it's all very staged. The, the questions seem to be all very, uh, you know, directed and on purpose to help establish the whole idea of scientific management, the protocol of peace, and, mm -hmm. and this revolutionary overhaul of American industry. And so the chairman asks him, who were the others? He says, Mr. Hamilton Holt and Mr. Walter Weil of New York. And so he asks them, not in the industry? No, I think they were all outside of the industry. I'm told that the Board of Grievances, the commission, did not dispose of the cases fast enough. And it was charged on the part of the union that they were allowed to accumulate. And the union became more and more dissatisfied. They demanded there be an umpire, that there should be somebody to cast the deciding vote on that board that led to a fierce controversy in which several good men went down. And it very nearly ruptured the protocol and caused a general strike. It was then changed to this plan that I have suggested and the employers consented to have an impartial man. But with this change, that instead of this impartial man being at the head of the board of grievances, that he was only to be one of three and two clerks and himself who should act as this committee so that the board of grievances become becomes a consultative board now and is now in active use for the adjustment of grievances. So what happens is that there's so many complaints and so many grievances and they're not happening, they're not getting uh, resolved quick enough. So there's this, this growing backlog of grievances and it's creating, you know, it's stopping work. There's all kinds of stoppages of work and they're trying to say that they're not strikes at this point. The protocol has been able to maintain, you know, some calmness between the worker and the, and the, the boss. So as an answer to that, they created another board and, and again had Brandeis as the tiebreaker. So I'm just showing you here that Brandeis is the man here. Yeah, and over and over again. Show it even further. So Mr. Chairman, and this is the testimony of Louis Brandeis. Mr. Chairman, my special interest in this subject arises from a conviction that in the first place, the working men, and in the second, the members of the community generally can attain the ideals of our American democracy only through an immediate increase and perhaps a constant increase in the productivity of man. 
Hmm. He's basically saying the workers got to pick up their socks. Um, he's also saying the manufacturers, you know, if they can be more efficient, but the basis here of his idea is that man has to be more productive for this to work. It's progressivism. It's the increase yeah, in the productivity sure. of it. It's, it's the definition of progressivism. Yeah, he uses the word right next. He says the progress that we have made mm. in improving the condition of the working men during the last century, and in particular during the last 50 years, has been largely due to the fact that the intervention or the introduction of machinery has gone so far in increasing the productivity of the individual man. So here comes machinery. This is the Industrial Revolution, and it is making us very productive. Right. It's not an increase in in you know talent or skill of the individual man, but it's the addition of machinery. So here's the, again, the first meeting of man and machine. The misfortune in connection with the introduction of machinery and the revolution that came with it is or was that when that introduction of a method of increasing the productivity of man was made, labor did not get the share to which it was entitled. So they're saying, yeah, okay, we're, we're doing everything you say, but where's our share? Right. right. The promise was a share in profit and leisure, is what they said. And so the worker's not getting any of that. No. And we can see today that that's still very much real, right? Right. Yeah, I remember that dream a bit as a child, like thinking about some futuristic society where everything was taken care of, and it was like all of us benefited in some way in my mind, you know. And yeah. <laughs> as you get older, it's like, oh God, no, that doesn't work that way. Yeah, we see reality. Yeah. You know, there are all kinds of layoffs going on right now. Bell here in Canada laid off like 45,000 people and it's directly related with the fact that there's more and more automated, you know, ways that they can eliminate labor. And if you ask any employee or or, sorry, employer, the first thing that they're going to want to rid themselves of is labor costs because it's, Mm. you know, takes half their profit. So if they can find a way to make a machine do the job of a man, they're going to do it. And that's what we see starting here. Absolutely. With the advent, now this is Brandeis, with the advent of the new science of management has come the next great opportunity for increasing labor share in production. And it seems to me, therefore, of the utmost importance, not only that the science should be developed and should be applied as far as possible, but that it should be applied in cooperation with the representatives of organized labor in order that labor may now in this new movement get its proper share. So he's saying, okay, you didn't get the proper share last time, but with this protocol of peace and and what we're going to do here, you'll share in the profit. Hmm. So that's fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And now we're a hundred years later and we see that this, you know, this is a myth that we somehow... Uh, gain in profit because we've become more efficient as a mass of laborers. That's just not the case. That's not what's happening. So we see, you know, promises that are empty. Yeah, I find that in most cases, these men are talking to each other in these dissertations rather than the common man and the working man Mm -hmm. that they claim to be speaking to, including Aldous Huxley. You know, it's not like he was warning the public of some horrible, dire future. He was basically just dictating the plans uh, to his to his uh, colleagues. That's right. And Brave New World is a blueprint. And they can say things like that as long as it's fiction. But, you know, yes. he wrote, wrote ends and means too. And, right. And, that's, that's and this stuff is nonfiction it. here. These things, you know, these are being yeah. said in public discourse about reality. Yeah. Exactly. It's unreal. That match, 
that match what they're saying in their fictional tales. Exactly, because they have to rope it all in. I mean, shit, I'm, I don't know if we're getting into it in this series, but we... Sh- that would man to cover all of the propaganda in in hollywood that's geared towards all of what we're talking about in this series Mm. is like i just as a movie guy as a totally obsessed movie guy over the years i'm just thinking of endless titles in my head of all the movies that kind of support the ideologies that we've been covering in this series so far Mm. it's unreal they've all been probably products of these people in some way entertainment hollywood Mm -hmm. That's yeah, just bingo. another aspect of our society that they're infiltrating, like religion. Very like important education. one. Yeah. yeah. And the music industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You kind of almost like redo all of our perspectives on like conspiracy thinking with this lens. <laughs> you know, right. seeing it through this lens and, and going through every subtopic that we've, you know, kind of enamored ourselves with over the years. You could yeah. see it in a different way. Yeah. But anyway, it's I digress. Social contract is, but we're talking about social contract, right? And so, mm. you know, what is that in our modern day, but exactly what's, you know, problematic. A lot of us see that we have major issues in our society. And when we talk about new world order and all of these things going on, really what we're bitching about is, you know, the quality of our social contract. Mm. And so I find it amazing that we've uncovered this. And, and what I'd really like to force into the public discourse is how our social contract was created because obviously none of us were involved. Right. And exactly. even people that lived in the moment weren't involved. You can see how these are created through these commissions. And really, even though this commission didn't find fault or send anybody to jail, it helped establish the, the baseline standards for mm-hmm. all of labor across America. So Science of management is nothing more than an organized effort pursued intensively to eliminate waste. It is absolutely essential that the unions be represented in the process. Now, you can look at eliminating waste as the human, too. In the next phase, the first bears, of course, upon the adopting of what is the standard. But the next thing comes in applying some matter, some incentive, as you may call it, or a reward of a fair division of the profits resulting from the introduction of the new system. Now, what is fair? What is the amount which ought to go to labor is a subject which cannot be determined by any scientific investigation. Now, I took that right out of there. That is a direct quote. So the science is the answer to everything in our life, except for when we have to figure out a fair compensation for the laborer. That will be judgment. And if not the employer, then whose judgment is that? Well, that's obviously the manufacturer or the the trade union, but those are both in cahoots with each other. This is why the labor union was established. So we're actually asking people to change their perspective. I'm running into a lot of uh, pushback on this idea of labor unions being similar to the plantation, similar to, you know, all of those things that um, Larkin Rose is making similar connections to. He's saying through the plantation and and this Jones plantation that it's analogous to the state today. And I totally agree but it's also analogous to uh, the labor union and the labor expert, the labor leader. These are all the same. It's, a, it's the infusion of the scientific expert. And this, this really is kind of like the magic trick that they do. As long as they got a scientific leader or scientific expert as their leader or uh, influencer, then they influence the scientific expert and how do they do that we've seen it through grants 
you know, the grant system in the universities. And, and this is really where all of our experts do come out of is the association of universities. You know, all the university, the university oh, yeah. networks in Canada and the United States and Britain, this is really where all of our leaders, whether they're a, a talking head on CNN or, you know, our health expert here that was making mandatory all kinds of crazy shit during COVID. Right. They aren't elected. We never elected any of these people, but they are scientific experts. And, and we clearly saw that our elected officials were subservient to all of it. Mm -hmm. So this got me wondering, like, where does this come from? You start to see the word expert in every headline the experts say. Yeah. And so this is an appeal to authority people whenever you see that with the lack of evidence. So when you see somebody say, you know, these 17 intelligence officials confirm that this happened if they don't show you evidence you are falling for an appeal to authority this is the gray area of vulnerability we need to see right. evidence that backs up what they're saying otherwise we're going to start paying taxes for things called global warming that eventually turn into climate change that makes us all climate deniers of course That's you know th this would require a whole level <laughs> of understanding and education that the common man is not getting right right you know, to be aware until of these now. things and be critical right. of these things. Until now, until right here. And, yeah, damn right. You know, I've, I've staked my claim as the historian that um, is going to find unique possibilities in this strange experiment of the social sciences. This is what <laughs> these guys wrote in their books. They were they said, you know, it's too close to net to the time that it, this has all happened. We're going to need, you know, some time to go by before somebody can really delve into all of this information. And one day that historian is going to come along and find unique possibilities in this strange experiment, the motivate uh, the mobilization of social sciences as an answer to Americans, American problems, social problems, social inequity, and all of these things. This is what they say in their book. And that's the, the, the primary author of the international labor organization. So when we talk about the importance of labor and then this uh, future infusion of an international order, well, the, the International Labor Organization was attached to the League of Nations in 1919. The constitutions had to match. And they said that it, that they may not have known the, the total reasons why when they made it, but when they saw it all unveiled, they knew that it was part of the New World Order. He says it in his book, James T. Shotwell. He's a social science uh, expert, but he's a professor at Columbia University and friends with James Harvey Robinson, Charles Beard. He's very influential. Canadian Quaker. We've gone over that guy. Yep. And so he's very influential also in the creation of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's really a founder of that. And he's a part of the first ever scientific expert. It's called the Inquiry. That's the founder of Council on Foreign Relations. And so that's week eight, nine, and 10. Somewhere in there, we're going to deal with that. Excellent. So it was a matter of judgment, not scientific uh, analysis to find a fair and equitable share for the labor. So judgment as to what not only shall be the best and proper incentive, but judgment as to what is uh, just, what is consistent with the interests of the community, all of the conditions which surround introduction, and all of the conditions which concern the pursuit of business under these new conditions, just as those concern the conduct of business under the old conditions, demand that labor should have its representatives in the solution of these problems. So labor needs its representatives, and this is where uh, they look to the scientific expert, the labor union. 
So eliminating waste also can have more than one meeting in the same way ameliorating the poor and needy can, right? Hmm. When you think of eliminating waste, what they said there, well, that also works for the men on the shop. Some guys are going to do a better job than others. And what do they do with those ones that aren't working out well? Out the door. This is what they're talking about. Same with ameliorating the poor and needy. It's just like justifying your existence in front of the chopping block, you know? Right. So when you look at the phrases, ameliorating the poor and needy and eliminating waste in the context of that George Bernard Shaw video, you can see that ameliorating the poor and needy may mean the elimination of those people, not the condition. Exactly. Right. The poor and needy is a social condition if you look at it one way, but the poor and needy can also be, you know, a person. Yeah, well, just like the carbon they want to erase is us. Right. So it seems strange that these social science engineers that despite advocating scientific management as the solution for every problem of labor and capital, when faced with solving the question of fair compensation, it becomes all of a sudden a problem that cannot be determined by any scientific investigation. All of a sudden, all the science in the world couldn't be trusted to find an equitable division of profit as easily as it had or as readily as it was being used by capital to increase the productivity of the labor and nearly everything else. So no, it would be judgment that would determine how much the worker would partake in the profit in labor and leisure and upon whose judgment were they to rely if not the workers. Well, that's obviously the, the owners. So Mr. Thompson, who's questioning Mr. Brandeis in this commission, says, Mr. Brandeis, I would like to ask whether in your study of this subject you have placed or fixed any time at which labor should cooperate with the employer as to the setting of a time standard and the initiation of a standard so now they're talking punch clocks. They're, they're talking about a general time standard in which, you know, workers have to show up and do their work and they're going to work for this certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So it's very regimented. We see that this is all being implemented here. And Brandeis says, yes, all the time, of course. <laughs> it seems to me it should begin at the time when the plans are being made to introduce the system right from the beginning, he says. Wow. We should have some sort of time system that locks everybody in. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Thompson, some of the advocates of scientific management, Mr. Brandeis, who have appeared here as witnesses before the commission, well agreed to the proposition that it would perhaps be beneficial for labor to cooperate or have a voice in cooperating with the employer in running the system, felt that at the introduction there should be no cooperation, that there is so much difficulty in the selection of the system and the installation of it that the added element of labor would make it impossible. So they don't want to involve the opinion of labor because it's just going to confuse things. Now we get into how the Germans weren't invited to the Paris peace conference and it's very similar, this pattern, you know, they're looking at labor as the opposition here, not as, you know, equal always trying to bring people together. You can see through their language that just how they're looking at this. Exactly. So Brandeis says, Uh, When he asked if Brandeis conceives of this, he says, I should say quite the contrary. It seems to me that the elements of difficulty in introduction are largely due to the fact that there is hostility. He's talking about, you know, the workers and their their hostility to the introduction. And that if organized labor or the representatives of labor uh, should welcome and cooperate in the introduction of a greater part of these difficulties would be removed. The whole of the work, it seems to me, would be greatly aided by a spirit of helpfulness instead of the reverse. So he's saying, hey, workers, it would 
you know, we could move forward here if you'd stop your bitching and complaining about this. Mm -hmm. He's not saying anything about the manufacturers maybe paying more or, you know, raising their safety standards. <clears throat> so, Mr. Thompson, again, Mr. Brandeis, some of the representatives of organized labor now he's talking about who have appeared here to testify have concurred in the idea of scientific management, which you have elaborated. That is to say, by if by studies and by analysis and selection, better methods for doing the work could be brought about, which would be beneficial to the community and to the worker as well as to the employer, it, would, it was a good thing. But they have object, objected to the stopwatch method of making time studies. People who have represented systems such as Mr. Taylor and others have said that the stopwatch method of making time studies is one of the first laws of scientific management. In your opinion, what reasonable objection can there be to the introduction of the stopwatch method of making time studies? <clears throat> so Brandeis says, it seems to me there can be no objection except the one as to the way in which it is introduced. So he's saying that, you know, it has to be a part of it, but we're going to have to introduce it in a way that's accepted by the worker. But if it is done in the right way, the stopwatch cannot, it seems to me, be objected to by labor because it is the greatest possible protection to labor. What labor has suffered from in the past and is constantly suffering from now is the ignoring of facts. He's using that hmm. word again, subjectivity. There is nothing as I view it in the situation, the whole social industrial structure that labor wants so much as knowledge. So he's, he's telling labor to get smarter, mm. basically in his, in his nice way. Um, so there is nothing as I view it in the situation, the whole social industrial structure that labor wants so much as knowledge. It wants not only to know itself, but it wants to, wants others to know it. So he's talking about labor and the, the general masses of workers and, you know, and how they want to be accepted, but they also want to know themselves. He's speaking mm -hmm. for them and mm -hmm. any means that may be adopted whether it be the stopwatch or the photograph or any other means that could absolutely establish the fact as to what is being done how long it takes to do it what the unit is of doing the particular thing all those are in the interest of labor because they are in the interest of truth huh. so he dares use that word man mr we still Brandeis. use that stopwatch mentality in yeah. every aspect of labor today sure even more so i mean we're all on you know, a lot of it is on punch clocks. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, even when like I was on a team uh, in manufacturing years back that literally, you know, we would measure out steps. We would literally use time like stopwatches and everything when creating mm -hmm. new processes and procedures around the building right. and things like yeah. that down to the second. This is a yeah. German run company, mind you. Right. <laughs> right. So, Mr. Thompson asked Brandeis, in your study of this subject, have you considered ways and means? In other words, have you considered the kind of machinery that might be used in the cooperation of the employer and employee in putting into operation their joint cooperation in the introduction of the system? Brandeis says, not machinery. And I doubt very much whether there is any machinery except the tactful and sympathetic man. Hmm. He's talking about the worker. Yep. Someone who realizes in the first place that the great gain we are to get from scientific management is advancing the interests of the working man and who recognizing that as a fact has the tact to bring the working man and his employer together in the adoption of the means by which the various steps should be taken. So we're talking about utility. 
and the greater good. Mm -hmm. Man, the factory worker must understand his utility and do things, you know, for the greater good. So Mr. Thompson asks him, have you considered whether or not it is feasible at the beginning for a representative of the workers and the firm to have a joint voice in the selection of the expert who shall install a system or would that be impractical? So he's saying, should we get a representative from uh, the labor union? In, he says a representative of the workers, that's what he means, and representatives of the firm, meaning the corporation company. Mm. And Brandeis says, of course, certainly. In such a selection, Mr. Thomas says, Mr. Brandeis, of the kind of man you mentioned, a tactful, diplomatic man, he would then be, in a sense, the instrument or medium by which this principle of cooperation and scientific management might be brought about. Brandeis says, certainly. So here we are using people as an ends and means, totally using them. They're using the word instrument. So, you know, in a sense, the instrument or medium. So what is that? That's medium is like taking, it's going from point A to point B. They're mm. using, uh, they're using utility. the utility saying it. Yeah. Utility. This is exactly it, right? It's Bentham's utility. You have to be right. useful in this world, just like George Bernard Shaw was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. And we're connecting all of this through the literature. So the following conversation between the chairman, Frank Walsh, and, and Mr. A. Rosenberg. Um, and here's where we get into the protocol of peace. <clears throat> so how has it, the protocol of peace, affected the shop's work? And Rosenberg says, after the signing of the protocol, yes, compared with what it was before. And so Mr. Rosenberg says, the agreement says explicitly there shall be no strikes in lockout. And possibly during that time, we had a few misunderstandings with shops which did not call strikes, but a stoppage of work. But those stoppages of work have never been ordered by the union or by any official of the union. See how he's, he's assisting the union there by mm -hmm. taking all the blame off of them and putting it on the worker. Right. Those stoppages of work, and what that proves is that there's some sort of affiliation there. Mm -hmm. Those stoppages of work have always been ended by the union, as far as my knowledge goes. Of course, in many cases, stoppages are avoided for more than an hour or two. To my memory, we had only serious stoppages of work where the union had all sorts of trouble before sending the people back to work in possibly a half a dozen shops. Those stoppages in half a dozen shops lasted for a day or possibly two days or say a week. Even in the independent shops with these shops, we did not have any individual agreement. We have very few strikes because the union, as well as the employers, are always trying to get together on some basis to prevent strikes. In other words, as far as strikes are concerned, I believe for the last three years and a half, they have been out of existence. Now that's not true. We see all kinds of uh, labor strife still continue after this. We see, you know, this is 1910, or uh, this is actually 1916 when, when this investigation goes on. So it's a year after the Ludlow massacre, but there's still major labor wars happening. So within, 12 months of this um, this testimony being said, there was the Rockefellers opening fire on you know workers, wives and children and burning people to death. <laughs> and so he's stating here that there's no strikes. There were stoppages of work. There was other things, but we're not going to call it a strike. And if we do, we're not going to cert we're certainly not going to blame the labor uh, unions or the shops because they're working together to try to prevent these things. Right. How convenient. 
So what has been the result of your adjustment of grievances under this protocol? He says, we will come to that. And then he goes on to talk about what he wants to talk about. So you can see this isn't like an interrogation. This isn't a, a real investigation. This is more like what I call, I don't know if I said it in this article, but it's more like an a infomercial for scientific mm. management. Similar to the questions are leading them into answering them, just as you would see, you know, in an organized sort of premeditated interview. Right. Well, that's kind of what you were saying about the church committee, too. And yep. How it was all kind of orchestrated. Yep. And now I look back on it, it does very much seem that way. Yeah. Yeah. So the first couple of months, we had no machinery and we did not know how to set about it. The protocol provided a board of grievances. We talked about this earlier. The board of grievances was composed of five reps from the union and five from the manufacturers association. And those 10 people used to come together whenever there was any grievance. And we tried to adjust them in the best way we knew how and with the best machinery we had at our disposal. So I'm, they're talking about administrative machinery here, mm -hmm. not necessarily like machinery in the factory and assembly lines and all of those things. They're talking about the ways that they can change things legislatively, administratively there. So on many occasions when it was necessary to make an investigation, the Board of Grievances used to employ one representative of the employers and one representative of the union. And those two used to go up to the shop and investigate. And if they could adjust, they did adjust it. And if they could not, they brought it to the grievance board, to the board of the grievance committee and the grievance board acted on the merits of the case. And some decisions was made somewhere. But the, that arrangement was not satisfactory. The board of grievances offhand could not handle so many cases as they had on hand. So there was a whole lot of friction and trouble in the shops. And we finally called upon the Board of Arbitration to devise ways and means how to adjust grievances in the future quicker than they had been doing. And the Board of Arbitration got together. So you can see how labor, you know, work stoppages, it's going to obviously affect the bottom line. And there's so many right now that they're trying to find another way to sort of streamline so that they can, you know, continue work while trying to deal with all the grievances. Mm -hmm. They need the assembly lines to keep rolling so that they can make money but there's so many stoppages and people are so pissed off about you know being forced into labor like this it's such a radical change of american tradition and value that you, you know we're seeing major uh, labor wars you know they're opening fire on each other and this is all related and concomitant with what's going on in canada and britain at the same time this kind of investigation happens in canada in 1916 the exact same thing and they implement the exact same thing here, just as they did in Britain. So they're following the lead of the Brits all the way through this because they've just gone through it. It's like having an older brother, right? You know, a greater so ahead of you. They've already been down there. And we see that later in international uh, affairs because, you know, Britain's the world leader. They're the dominant mm. world leader for the last century, but they're about to change that over to the Americans. And so that's what this is all about. We know that the 20th century is the American century. And that was largely built on industry. And this is how they established it before they even were involved in the war. Well, yeah. So, but whenever those two deputy clerks disagreed and could not come to a conclusion, then it was submitted to chief clerks on each side. Each side has a so-called chief clerk. The Manufacturers Association employed one and the union employed one. So we got unions and manufacturers. 
But whenever those two chief clerks disagreed on a case, then it was brought before the Board of Grievances, and the Board of Grievances, sitting as a court, used to hear the case, and whenever necessary, they called witnesses to testify, and it was the custom that each side had an equal number of members on that grievance committee. So it required one of each side to decide the case one way or the other. For instance, if the union had a complaint against a certain manufacturer, it required one manufacturer to vote with the worker, right? It had to break the stalemate mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So the protocol of peace, there's the document right there in behind. We've pulled those off of the internet. And so uh, you can read these, they're on the internet. You just have to go looking for them, but this is really uh, widely understood by historians across the board that this is a very significant moment in the in the uh, history of American labor. This is really where they establish all of these minimum hours and minimum wage laws. And so we start with the quote from Richard A. Greenwald. He wrote the triangle shirtwaist that we've already cited from. He says, industrial democracy provides an important lens through which to view IR, industrial relations, during the progressive era. Industrial democracy was one of the handful of ideas that defined progressive era reformers. This is one of the defining characteristics of uh, progressive is this idea of industrial democracy, okay? So it's mm -hmm. not just a, a, an obscure idea. This is really the backbone to progressive belief at this time. Oh yeah. So it's, it signaled a new scientific approach to labor in America, as well as a fundamental recommitment to democratic principles. Right, so it's it's even larger than labor. They're establishing new democratic principles, and we go back to 1913 with the new democracy, the new republic, the new nationalism, the new right. freedom. They're using these very important words and putting new in front of them. At the same time, same year, all these same people. Uh, it was the purpose of the protocol to introduce into the relations of the employer and the employee a whole new element that is the element of industrial democracy, Louis Brandeis. Brandeis was foremost among all in the creation of the Protocol of Peace, and it was largely through his efforts that the strike was ended on September 2nd, 1910. The protocol provided legislation for a 50-hour week, six-day work week, 10 paid legal holidays a year, time and a half for overtime, an increase in the minimum wage, a regular and prompt cash payday, all-in-shop subcontracting abolished. But most importantly, the agreement was the official acceptance of the union shop. All of this resulted in the creation of the union. And that was the most important thing, having a representative for the workers. And so here right. we are again, that sounds like a good thing, but when you have a scientific expert in, in control, they, and you are relying on the expert, it creates a, an area of vulnerability. Right. And this is how they're able to, you know, steer society. You know, that labor is as important as law, mm. you know, in, Absolutely. in having, having the hive mind and everybody think the same and in social control they control your labor and law you know we don't really often think about these two things as you know run by social engineers but that's what they call themselves lawyers and we get into that next week and yes. these men okay so each member of the manufacturer is to maintain a union shop and when hiring union men are preferred and healthcare only for union men, the manufacturers declare their belief in the union, the union as a scientific expert, an absolute necessity for the future international system. They would begin constructing a mere two years later under Woodrow Wilson, the alignment first of America, 
to be compatible or compliant to the future model of collectivism, globalism or internationalism, a must, a prerequisite to everything. But that story concludes this series, so much more on that later. So I've already said that in, during week eight, nine, and 10, this is where, where we're gonna show the international uh, implementation. So the yeah. creation of the UN, NATO, things that have created perpetual war, and how Brandeis is deeply involved in all of that too. My God, that's unbelievable. So, well, he creates the inquiry. This is the mm. founding of the CFR, but we'll get into that. So one notes how the protocol is an arrangement entered into between the cloak, suit and skirt manufacturers, protective association here and after called the manufacturer and the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. The workers here not named, only their representative, the union. Note the lack of presence throughout the entire process of the actual worker. The opinion right. of the worker is nowhere to be found. Just like today, how the general masses don't really have a say. We all just follow whatever the talking head on the news program says, or more specifically now, the scientific expert's opinion. Exactly. So the entire system built upon the back of the laborer, yet where is his voice being heard? Certainly not in the testimony of Brandeis or his industrial friends here. Exactly. Not even the cloak close. Strike, yeah, the cloak strike ends. Agreement signed. Men will, men win all their demands except that for the closed shop. That's out of the New York Times the day after it was all uh, signed. The strike of 70,000 cloak makers, which began early in last July, ended yesterday with the acceptance by both the strikers and the employers of a peace protocol based principally upon, upon the agreement suggested by Louis D. Brandeis of Boston <laughs> in the last days of July when he conducted a series of conferences between employers and strikers. That's New York Times saying Louis Brandeis is the one laying down all of this uh, standards for uh, labor. Yeah, he's the and, expert. Yep. And then again from uh, the New York Times showing that this goes on even after, you know, 1910. And who is it but Schiff? So we've talked <laughs> about Schiff. Oh, and yeah. how they created Israel, their involvement in Israel. Well, here he is again. Shift committee stops labor war. Cloak manufacturers agree to its proposal to arbitrate differences with unions. Settlement now in sight. 50,000 workers were, were ready to strike. Brandeis or Mayor Mitchell may head board. That's the headline of the New York Times, July 3rd, 1915. Wow. So in New York City's garment industry, reformers found that was... Reformers found what was arguably the nation's most primitive industry, cutthroat competition, layers of subcontracting, and a poorly paid mass of immigrant workers, among other things, locked garment manufacturing in a 19th century production model. It therefore offered a perfect laboratory for people such as Louis Brandeis. The ladies' garment industry had an established but weak new union. It had a core of willing industrial Democrats within the industry led by Julius Henry Cohen, a noted corporate lawyer. The result, Brandeis' creation, the Protocol of Peace, was one of the most significant labor management cooperation schemes of the pre-New Deal era. Wow. So impressive was the protocol that when the Wilson administration created the U.S. Commission on Industrial Relations in 1913, the, the commission that we're talking about right now, Brandeis was the president's first choice to chair it. <laughs> so instead of being the, the key witness here he would have been the one asking questions but he uh turned that down because within a month he becomes a member of the executive committee on the federation of american zionists 
which starts right. the ball rolling for him to become in 1916 as the leader of all international Zionism. So Brandeis was the president's first choice to chair it. New York also was the site of the terrible Triangle Factory fire of March 25th, 1911, when 146 mainly young immigrant women garment workers died because the, you know, the fire sparked a reform effort that in four years remade New York into the model of a progressive state. He's saying that triangle shirt. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the triangle factory fire, if anybody knows what that was, it's all women. They're all creating, they're all um, sewing garments and too many people were taking breaks, cigarette breaks and all of these things. So all of the doors by the manufacturing owners were locked from the outside a fire started and it it basically gutted the whole building and there's images that are very similar to 9-11 when you go and look in into you know the documents of that event because people leapt to their deaths they had Jeez. no choice they were either going to burn alive or jump to their death and so that's what happened and this is really the catalyst to all of this because it was just so deplorable and people were in an uproar on on how labor was being treated so we look at you know, people say, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Well, this is what they're doing. Right. And so out of those strikes comes this protocol. So here's another quote. The father of the protocol, Louis Brandeis, came to the labor question in 1892. <laughs> so in 1910, while New York was in the heat of the second in a series of general strikes in the garment industry, Brandeis came to the city to bring labor and management together in a novel agreement that became known as the Protocol of Peace, Triangle Shirtwaist. So they decided that if a big man made a call for a settlement conference and if the union and Cohen could set certain preconditions, talks could begin. It was clear to all concerned that they meant a big Jewish man. Both sides were concerned that their matters be settled within their community. They're, they, they're talking about the Jews because this is all Jews. They did not want an outsider meddling in their affairs. In a July 21st letter to Louis Brandeis, Bloomfield explained how he laid the foundations for talks. There was only one open door, to make a big man like Brandeis and empower him, to confer with both sides and draw up a fair basis of negotiations. Both responded heartily and suggested that I invite Mr. B and come with him for a private talk. That initial meeting set in motion a process that eventually led to the protocol. On July 22nd, Brandeis left for New York, taking with him a draft of a proposed labor agreement. After a preliminary meeting between the... So that's very much like when he got on the boat and went to Wilson, he already had the plan in hand. Right, yeah. So after, And that's three months before Wilson gets elected. So you can see he's got a... Already he's thought about it. He's formulated all of his thoughts into some sort of proposed labor agreement, and he's heading to New York to settle this case uh, on the request of some of his friends. Because it's at such a point that they, that everybody turns to Brandeis as the only guy that can solve this. Right. So after a preliminary meeting between the principal negotiators, Meyer London, noted socialist lawyer who advised, advised the union, and Cohen, a later conference, was scheduled with Brandeis as chair. At this first meeting were 10 representatives from each side, plus Brandeis and his staff. In writing about this meeting, McClure's magazine, Edith Wyatt, was struck by similarities on both sides. Both groups were almost identical. They were overwhelmingly Jewish. The union delegation included middle-aged unionists, radical workers, east side intellectuals, and socialists. And so did the management group. The mood at this first meeting was hopeful, according to McClure's. Samuel Gompers, president of the AFL, 
who was an observer at the first meeting, was so confident that he returned to Washington on the 29th, telling the New York Times he was sure that the garment workers' strike would be settled speedily. Brandeis set the mood for the conference. He told the 20 men assembled that they were witnessing an important moment in history, the birth of a new system of industrial relations. They would help shape the future. Gentlemen, Brandeis states, we have come together in a mat matter which we must all recognize as very serious and an important business, not only to settle this strike, but to create a relation which will prevent similar strikes in the future. That work is one which it seems to me is approached in a spirit which makes the situation a very hopeful one. And I am sure from my conferences with council of both parties and with individual members whom they represent that those who are here are all here with that desire. It seems to me that aid could be effectively and properly given by providing that the manufacturers should in the employment of labor hereafter give the preference to union men, where the union men are equal in efficiency to any non-union applicants. So he's, he's saying this basically has to be union shops. And this is one of the major contentious issues is what they called an open or a closed shop. And a closed shop is a union shop. So we still have this today. You know, if you aren't a union member, you won't be able to get work, you know, in an, in a place because it's, it's, you know, union. Right. And so you can see that he is saying that this will never work unless we have the union. So we're not going to move forward unless we have the scientific expert involved. You can see that it's key to their whole plan. That mm -hmm. They have to have trade unionism directly out of, you know, the ideas of the webs and the Fabian syndicalists. It's so crazy when you find out that like our entire labor system today is based off of these people talking about these ideas and just formulating this. Yeah. And it turns into our literal basis for our labor. Yep. And so, you know, the one, one of the things that has surprised me through all of this, Andy, is just how normal it is. Like yeah. we're not entering any conspiracy. We're just showing you how it happened. We're not, we're not coming at this from with any ulterior, ulterior motives other than the truth. Uh, so for people concerned, I'm going to tell you what started me on this. It was really an investigation into the UN, into lobbying groups, into the Council on Foreign Relations and think tanks, all of these things that we can all agree are very detrimental to our society. They're problematic to, to the health of our society. And, yeah. and through those, we've had the implementation of social sciences. So we have all kinds of social science research institutes that are very powerful in America. And what that is, is they're just studying our behavior and then feeding that information back in. We've talked about this uh, feedback loop created by Norbert Wiener. And this is the founding of cybernetics, which is, again, the study of human beings. But this is a generation later in the 30s and around World War II. But what we're saying is that this progressive era and especially the efficiency movement here is where all of the technocratic uh, future comes out of. And this is the basis for AI, the singularity, um, Klaus Schwab. Yeah. This whole new reset. Fauci. All of it comes from there. Yep. The Fauci is a great representative of the scientific expert and how we relied on somebody we didn't elect. And I'd never... You know, I lived through AIDS and he was a spokesperson then. But right, exactly. It didn't, it didn't register with me until somebody told me that, that this is the same guy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I, I didn't know until I started seeing the posters from the eighties, the pictures of people saying Fauci, like you know, against him for the same reason like the people like us existed back then. 
right and so this. this this is a good point uh maybe we can end it here is that um in the 2022 walter Lippmann conferences that i've been watching and that we're going to go over in the final uh couple episodes yeah they said that you know it was a call to crisis and it was a a meeting at the columbia school of journalism so one of the more powerful journalist schools in america maybe the preeminent one yeah i would but say they so called, and they called all kinds of experts to show up to talk about the, the plight of the expert in modern day and mm. they say that we are in crisis and they bring up fauci and say he's under attack from the left and the and right the right yeah so it, the, the hate there crosses party lines and what i think and what i stated to you earlier this week is that i think like they tr they're trying to tear down all of uh, those institutions that are important, like you know, education, media, capitalism. They're doing the same there, and so we got to be careful about you know just getting rid of the entire system. I think we have to you know grab a scalpel. We have to be more specific about those institutions that we have to remove. Mm. Uh, even in an anarchy. Uh, we're going to need institutions. We're going to need to educate the youth and there's going to be, you know, certain needs that have to be there. So we have, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's not the system necessarily it's systemic in that we've allowed the wrong people to control these things. And now they've had a hundred years to do it. So it's obvious, you know, anybody growing up now post nine 11 would look at things and go, yeah, this is capitalism, that makes sense that that's really, you know, detrimental to our society when really, I would argue that it's monopoly capitalism. They blamed laissez-faire mark free market to get rid of it. And that's a very empowering instrument, uh, instrument to the individual, just like, you know, cash and all of these other yes. things that actually connect you to source. So this is one of those traits. If you're wondering if you're being manipulated, well, are they removing you from source? Exactly. Right? This is a big part over of the mainstream media when they make extraordinary claims, do they provide evidence? Very rarely. Not. Yeah. So this is one thing to understand here today is that they're asking you through this to appeal to their authority and, you know, go look it up. That's an actual logical fallacy. That is, um, you know, there are lie, there are names for the lies that they put across the television. There's a series of them. There's over a hundred of them and the appeal to authority is probably the most popular. Yeah. And they and, hope and, and to, why? you're because not the scientific expert. And they hope that you're not educated on it. And they hope that you're relying on the scientific expert for all of this anyway. So yeah, you won't have not, to understand it. Yeah. And they're not hoping in so much. They made it happen too. Right. They, yeah, exactly. They used the term disinterestedness and they wanted to create a disinterestedness, not only in the general public, but in the scientific expert that was evaluating human society because they needed them to, to do things that were critical and and compassionless yes and then the feeling. public they needed to just be you know apathetic and and take the role of blissful ignorance which is what we see today right so exactly you know the progressive era is very influential today and so you know we introduced everybody to bentham to compte uh to hume and how this continuity of thought comes all the way today and that sets us up nicely. It introduces everybody to the names and the ideas that we're really going to get into deeply in this two-part week six and seven 
of the philosophy and science of law and the and the modern philosophy of law that we have today. You know, many people look at that and question it in the same ways that they question the motivations of media mm -hmm. or our politicians, right? And so, you know, that's another possible pillar to Western values that we should consider. And so yeah. that's what we're going to get into next week, just how, how uh, law is the greatest engine of social control is what they say. And so it really opened my eyes to, uh, and we all, you know, it doesn't take a second thought before we realize, yeah, law really does control us, right? Oh, yeah. Laws make us not do things that maybe we would. But yeah, it wasn't until I really dove deep into how our modern law was created that I started to see the importance of understanding law in general. So we're going to get into how 33rd degree Mason, Nathan Roscoe Pound and, and Brandeis together out of the Harvard Law School combine sociology with law. And, and what is that? But it's infusing the scientific expert into decision making, into case law. And so I invite everybody to be here in a week because it's, it's really going to start to layer things and you're starting going to start to see the patterns and heads will roll really nothing no way you can argue any of this we're just showing you true history and using source material to do so so and i yeah and, and again a hundred years of hindsight has allowed us to kind of see this as it is now yes. i think through this through the fog of the 20th century this is all happening orchestrated and many people involved and surrounding it were just in that fog the fog of war yep. in one way or yes. the other and now we're kind of coming out of that fog of war seeing the the results of this long con that's gone mm -hmm. on and uh yeah, yeah it's really and impressive Dwayne. within this work we see all kinds of things that are relatable to today how mm -hmm. they use nice sounding words oh big uh, time to get us to do things and so really they attack our uh, sentimental, the liberal door of sentimentality is, is how I like to say it. They, they go like after that. and tug your heartstrings, right? This mm -hmm. is how they get you to They're move. They're bleeding they heart. On an emotional plane, not logical. Exactly. Reasonable. So this exactly. is really one of the uh, main uh, MOs of mainstream. Yeah, it's, the, it's manipulation. It's so, pure, it's abuse, it's manipulation, it's gaslighting, it's it's everything, yeah. So yep. uh, everybody, thank you so much um, for those sticking with us. We got 14 people watching right yes. now. That's excellent, you know. The, so, these numbers are great. You know, we're I hope just it's... under two hours, Andy. Yeah, I appreciate so, it, yeah. Do what you want to do there, I'm done. If you want to maybe have somebody ask, ask some questions and we can get out of here by eight, or if you want to leave now, it's okay by me. Yeah, I mean, if anybody, I mean, unfortunately, I'm not sure just how, um, you know, close to um, live the chat is. It should oh. be pretty, pretty close. It should be pretty mm -hmm. good. But if anybody does have any questions, please go ahead. But um, we'll probably wrap up regardless. Um, mm -hmm. I want, I definitely will encourage people to ask questions throughout um i hope they will but um the more the longer these videos are out as well we'll we'll get more uh questions i'm sure too uh, there's a yep. lot of good views on on this playlist so far um cool. a lot of high views so people are definitely interested in it 
Um, yeah, and so we're over halfway now through our ten part series. Yeah, so and this has been great so far. Together. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, this is this is big in my opinion. I think this is, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, you can really take this. Uh, you know, as I've done, as my audience may be familiar with, uh, I've done this with the box saga and other aspects of deep, deep history, where you start to relook at the course of history uh, under a new lens with more perspective. It mm-hmm. just, it, it, things just make more sense. And they like I, we've said, this is like, I, I think I said it last week or the week before that this research is kind of, it's like you saw the end of a movie and now you get to see how it was, how it all gets to that ridiculous point at the end, yeah. which is our current time period that we're living in. So Dwayne, mm-hmm. thank you so much again, appreciate all the work you're yep. doing here. And uh, I, I encourage people to re- reach out to either one of us and go to um, bulletproofpub.com, check out all of uh, Dwayne's articles. And uh, yeah, we appreciate y'all being here. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you, Andy. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats swimming together, cactus terrier. Enough, <laughs> I get the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> And you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.